This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next, from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, a presentation by Randy Martin from Mercy Corps USA entitled The Balancing Act, Speed, Agility versus Cost, from the Conversations Network. Hello, this is Doug Kay, the Executive Director of the Conversations Network. And today I'm excited to bring you another session from the Disruption Management Seminar held at Stanford by the Center for Social Innovation, September 8, 2005. Created by the Stanford Graduate School of Business, the Center for Social Innovation builds and strengthens the capacity of individuals and organizations to develop innovative solutions to social problems. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Well, from preparedness, I think let's move on to uh, being in the theater. When you're in the theater, what are the actions? What are the things that you can do uh, so that you can be more effective? Uh, Randy Martin is the director of global emergency operations at Mercy Corps, and he'll share with us some of the experiences and some of the lessons that uh, he has learned uh, from their years of experience of uh, being in the front, working in the front in the action theater. So please welcome Randy. Yes. Good morning. I greatly appreciate being invited to participate in this, and I appreciate the conveners, uh, Fritz and MIT and Stanford University, for the opportunity not only to participate, but certainly the honor to speak to all of you. It's been a a crazy week, as you might imagine, for uh, organizations like mine that are involved in disaster relief. Uh, We have kind of a folklore at at Mercy Corps that that disasters happen during Christmas time and in August. And I've been with, I've been in the business for 25 years, but I've been in Mercy Corps for about two years and it's borne out. In December 26, 2003, there was a horrendous earthquake in Bamaran. We, mobilized very quickly. We had people there in a matter of hours, um, and we stayed on for a long, long time to work with the reconstruction there. We were just regrouping our emergency team from responding to bomb, and in July, there was an agreement between the UN Secretary General and the government in Sudan, which opened the door for humanitarian relief in Darfur. So August last year was a very, very busy month getting a team out there responding to that horrendous situation, two million people displaced by an ongoing civil conflict that I think you've all read a lot about. And then this, this, this past year, almost a year to the hour, it was uncanny. From the biome earthquake, we had the tsunami on the 26th of December. And again, uh, needless to, to say, an enormous humanitarian challenge for, for all of us. As this August approached, we had already decided that we needed to focus more and more on some of the forgotten humanitarian crises around the world and had decided, to had elected, I guess you could say, that it was about time that, that Mercy Corps got involved in Uganda. That's 1.6 million people displaced by a civil war there, horrendous humanitarian situation, crude mortality rates two and three times what are considered emergency levels, just a horrible situation. So we were getting our team together to go to Uganda. We got them on the plane. We shipped them off. Up on the radar screen, Niger. Um, Drought situation, famine, malnutrition. 
we we should get out there. So we said, we can do this. We can respond to two emergencies. We're not a huge organization, but let's do it. Let's get a team out there. We got a team out to Niger. We put together a very, I think, innovative community-based therapeutic feeding uh, program there. Very proud of it. Hands full, Uganda, Niger, New Orleans. So we are also, despite the fact that we're primarily an international organization, we got together and we said, look, we have expertise, we have experience, we have resources. It, it's absolutely imperative that, that we're involved. We know what to do there. So let's do it. Let's, let's, let's get involved. So August is, is um, certainly a, a very, very, very busy month for, for Mercy Corps. Hence, uh, I can apologize. I don't have a, my, my excuse for not having PowerPoint today. I have a different excuse every time I talk. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I want to take the, the discussion in a little bit different direction from, from the discussion from Cisco, which was fascinating. I really got a lot out of that. I want to talk a little bit about how Mercy Corps organizes itself to respond to disasters, how we do this, I, I think, in a cost-effective, efficient way, agile way. And I also want to talk a little bit about supply chain, though I'm not a logistician. I, there's a, some thoughts that I want to share about that. Um, but first, let me give you a little bit of back, background on Mercy Corps. We're a 25-year-old organization. We're primarily involved not in relief but in development, in international development work. We work in 35 countries around the world. We're a lot smaller than Cisco. We have only 3,000 staff. Um, about 95% of our staff are nationals of the countries we work in. Um, so only 5% of us are international, and that 5% is, is half of that is non-American. So we're a very diverse organization, which I'm very proud of. We work a lot through local partnerships. We, our focus, we're in development, but our focus is a little bit unique. We focus on societies that are in transition, transition not only economically, but also socially and politically. So you'll find us working in countries that are, are in a transition to market economies from, from generations of, of, of central planning. You'll find us working in countries that are trying to extricate themselves from civil conflict. You'll find us in situations where countries are trying to build uh, democratic institutions after, after many, many years of despotism. Those are the kinds of countries that we really, really specialize in. So when we look at humanitarian crises, we look at them a little bit different than some of our colleague organizations. We look at humanitarian crises as windows of opportunity to, to, to engage in countries that are, are, are in very important parts in their transitions. And actually, the humanitarian crisis can be a very good thing, a very good opportunity to engage in the process of a change. It's an opportunity. So, for example, when we looked at the tsunami, um, there are many, many countries affected. We were most compelled by three regions of the world that looked like they were in the process of, of a political transformation. We looked at Aceh, we looked at Sri Lanka, and we looked at Puntland. How many people know where Puntland is? Puntland is a part of Somalia, which is quasi-independent and which is different in many ways than south-central Somalia, where there's still a lot of turmoil and conflict. There were the, the signs that it was emerging and trying to get itself organized and, 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 uh, and, and work towards development. So those were, we also got briefly involved in, in India, but it was because we had a partnership there and we could do it quickly. 
So our major involvement were in these three countries that, 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 that were where we saw um, transition opportunities. Um, like any humanitarian organization, our initial, uh, our initial objective is to save lives and to reduce suffering. But we very quickly transition into developmental relief and into development as, as quickly as we possibly can. Let me talk a little bit about how we organize to respond to emergencies. I'm the director of the Global Emergency Operations Unit at Mercy Corps. We call it GEO. It's pretty modest in size. There's four of us, just four of us. We're all generalists with one exception. We have a logistician. But our logistician, we also pretty much require that they have general programming skills as well. Um, we're flat. We take turns coordinating um, different emergencies and one emergency you know, our, uh, one person will be the team leader and the next emergency, it'll be someone else. The way we work, though, is obviously we're, we're, we're too small to be an emergency team in sort of the traditional sense of it. The, the way we're organized is that our team coordinates the assets of the overall organization to respond to the emergency. When Mercy Corps decides to respond to an emergency, we, do, we set up what's called a response team. And we call it, if it's in Iraq, it's the IRT. If it's in the tsunami, it's the TRT. And Darfur is DRT and so on and so forth. Now we have a, a KRT for Katrina. The director of GEO coordinates that response team. And on that response team at headquarters, we have representation from all the different parts of the organization, from finance, from communications, from fundraising, so on and so forth, from security, from program operations. In the field, the core GEO team coordinates the field response, where, again, we borrow people from other countries, other parts of the organization, to build a team. We try to avoid new recruits at this point. We don't always su succeed. We try to make sure that our team that hits the ground are people that know Mercy Corps, that know our values, that know what's important to us, to know the directions we want programs to go towards development, that we don't want to get people tied up in dependency on, on, on relief. So we try to, to pull in these assets throughout the organization and coordinate them in the field with, our, with the GEO team as the coordinating part. One of the things that we're in the process of doing right now is we're actually developing a more formal way of doing this. We're developing an internal roster where we hope to get 20 or 30 people who are committed to deploy on 72 hours notice. They have a variety of technical expertise. By identifying them up front, we want to give them training in the things that are a little bit different about emergency response. We want to give them training in security, which is a real issue in many of the places where we respond. We want to give them training in developmental relief, in SPHERE standards. SPHERE standards are sort of the metrics that we measure humanitarian crises with. In logistics, we think that all of our people need to have basic training in logistics, not just a logistician. So we'll train those people up front so that we'll have a stronger response team that goes out to each of the emergencies. So you can see the model then is, is instead of having this big, large response team that parallels other parts in the organization, it's a very small team that pulls in the different parts of the organization. So consequently, you're looking at a guy that manages probably the smallest part of Mercy Corps. I've got a huge budget of $600,000, and yet... And yet, during the tsunami, I mean, we, within three months, had leveraged $45 million in private contributions, in grants, contracts to respond to the emergency. We were punching way above our, our weight in terms of our capacity 
to respond to emergencies using that very, very simple structure. So that's the cost effectiveness, the agility, and the speed. I, I want to talk a little bit about supply chain. J judging from the, the, the reading list and the cast of characters that have been uh, brought together here, there's a lot of interest in supply chain. I'm not a logistician, which I've warned the conveners about. Um, but uh, nevertheless, have a few things that I can talk about in broad terms, some of the lessons learned. And, you know, as putting together, uh, putting them together, they, they really look pretty simple. And, and I think part of that is the fact that the humanitarian community is probably way behind the corporate community in terms of managing supply chain. It's taken us a long time to learn some really hard lessons. So sorry if they're really simple, but here they are. The first lesson that I think is pretty well behind most of the major humanitarian organizations is that supply chain manager and management logistics is a profession. You need people that know what they're doing. You need to have them. You need to have a logistics unit in your organization. We have one. All of the major NGOs have one. But we've learned that. And not only do you need them to to help you manage supply chain, but also you need them to be always engaged in training other people in the organizational logistics. Because everyone needs, especially in emergency response, even though you're not the logistician, you need to understand logistics. And that, that's something that's, that's very important. The second lesson learned is that you need to engage logisticians and I'll throw in financial managers in emergencies from the very, very beginning. And this is, I, I, my colleague John Ricard has, has written about this. It's, it's so, so important that, that they're not seen as people that you bring in a couple months later to straighten up the paperwork. They got to be in there from the beginning. And also they need to be involved in what you wouldn't expect. They need to be involved in program design. And often they're not. They're not engaged in that process of designing, writing proposals, designing projects, but they need to be engaged in that as well. The third thing lessons learned is systems are important. And this, I think we've all really struggled with this, to put systems in place that help us with supply chain management. And my hat's really off to Fritz Institute and Intel for the work that they've put into developing this very thing for our community. It's just such an important contribution. And I think as we've seen in the tsunami, it's, it's paying off. The fourth lesson learned is a lesson we are learning, I guess I should call it. And it's one that, that concerns me a lot. There's been a couple of questions that kind of alluded to it in the, from after the earlier sessions this morning. And I'm not sure how to put it most succinctly. Supply chain should be preserved for what can't be found locally. Sort of the corollary is the more efficient our su supply chain is, the better it works. We have to resist the temptation to use it to bring in things that aren't needed. And this, this point, I, I can't stress enough how important it is. And then we're right, and like I said, we're right in the middle of learning it. We haven't quite got it yet. Let me give you some examples. In the tsunami, Mercy Corps accepted a $2 million consignment of medicines early in the crisis. And this was a very interesting case for us. We did our homework. We looked at what was in it. It wasn't Botox and Viagra. It was good medicine that was needed in these kinds of situations. It was good stuff. It wasn't expiring. So good quality medicines, stuff that wasn't weird, um, stuff that, gee, you got to need this in this kind of emergency. Let's get it. It's two million bucks. It's a relationship with a supplier that we wanted to build. 
let's bring it in. The field was saying, you know, we don't, we don't know if we need this. But head coach was saying, you know, let's take it. Let's get it out there. It was a nightmare. It, it tied up our supply chain. It tied us up getting that out there. It tied us up getting it cleared. It tied us up trying to get rid of it. It was a real, real headache. Um, the second ex- uh, example is kind of an example of the corollary of, well, we got the supply chain up. Um, here's the idea. It looks pretty good. We can get this stuff in there real good. Let's just do it. A donor we were really interested in developing a relationship with, we had building, been building on it. They came up to us and they said, we have 33,000 pairs of sandals. Wouldn't you like to have them? We said, oh, Sri Lanka. Okay. People wear sandals. Huh? These are great sandals, good product. You and I pay 20, 30 bucks for them, you know, in the store. What a great idea. We can get, down, get them out there quickly. We have the supply chain set up and ready to go. Let's do it. Our program people said, of course, program people had never asked for either of these consignments. Um, they said, well, you know, it's true people wear sandals, but, you know, they, they make them here. And women make them, and they make them out of tires, and they make them in their homes, and they sell them, and that's an important cottage industry in along the coastline where the economy has been devastated, people are sorely needed to get their livelihoods back together. What's going to happen if we dump 33,000 pairs of fancy sandals on the coast of Sri Lanka? And we decided not to do it. Um, and it was a good decision. Um, but it was, I, I can't tell you how tempting that is to an organization to take something like that. And I'm proud that we said no, but, you know, the reality was that uh, somebody else did. Um, and they did show up in Sri Lanka. It wasn't us, but uh, so it, it happens. But, you know, there's so many, so many examples of this. Um, a vitamin A sh- shipment that we almost took was the gift of a government that we were very keen to develop relationships with. Uh, and a huge shipment of vitamin A. Again, gee, what, you know, it's got a long shelf life. It looked like good stuff. Uh, if it's not needed immediately, we could give it to the government in Indonesia, was wh- where it was targeted. A little bit of research, we found out that it was made out of pork bone, which, you know, of course, you don't want to ship vitamin A made out of pork bone to an Islamic country, to a Muslim country. So it would have been a fiasco to do it. But there, there's it, the examples of these kinds of gifts and kinds, these kinds of material aid go on and on and on. And the ones that I'm showing you are some of the most compelling, but I have to tell you, I'm here to tell you, the kind of stuff that actually hits the ground in the field is even more bizarre than this. I mean, the stories of bikinis and flowered shorts in Afghanistan, this stuff happens. The, 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 uh, the, the uh, dietary uh, packaged meals that went to a famine in Ethiopia, that happened. Um, there's um, baby formula. Long after my industry has learned that baby formula can do more harm than good is a constant um, thing that you see getting shipped in to humanitarian emergencies that, that, that's not needed. So, uh, you know, my... Uh, let, me, let me give you just uh, one, one more quote. I, I have to read this email that came in from our, one of our people that, on the GEO team that was in Aceh. He said, It was clear from early on in Aceh that the market was functioning very well. The two to four kilometer stretch along the waterfront got totaled. But behind that, everything was just fine. Material aid was a waste of time. It was expensive. It was airlifted at huge costs. It was inappropriate. It was not required. It was not based on requests from the field 
or needs identified by the field. So much excess useless aid arrived that it clogged the airport, stopping important air traffic, etc. Um, so for us, the lesson is, one, as I've said, supply chain is very, very important. It's good. It's very important to have a supply chain that works and that runs well. But it's also important that you reserve it for what's really, really important and that you, you look at you, that supply chain is, is needs-driven, not supply-driven. Um, for us, the lesson is cash is best. And it was so, it was so good to hear Clinton and, and Bush say that to the American public, because I, I think the American public misunderstands that. They see a crisis and they run for their canned goods and their used clothes, and they, they want to give things rather than money, but money is what we need. It's the most flexible. It's the quickest. It allows us to respond to needs in the field. It allows us to procure closest to, the, to, to where the need is rather than using an extended uh, supply chain. It allows us to reinvigorate livelihoods, which is so important in these crises. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just so much more flexible, agile, and cost-effective for us to, uh, to work um, from a cash basis rather than um, contributions in kind. Um, the worst-case scenario to me is that we get so good at supply chain management that we're tempted to use it as a super highway to funnel in all kinds of junk to humanitarian programs which are bad for the programs which are not needed and which divert us from from the longer longer term objectives of restoring societies to 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 some kind of normalcy so there's so much more I could say, but I think I'll leave it to that and, and see if there's other questions that people have. Have you sick of me by the end of this, but um, I'm curious, um, and this is applicable both um, for uh, private sector as well as, as humanitarian organizations or NGOs, and domestically as well as internationally. So I'm curious for your organization what is it that you do differently than other NGOs, and how is it that you work with your partner NGOs um, to re to mitigate service redundancies? Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's, it's a very good question, but but there's two very different parts. I, I think I think every NGO likes to think that they do things really really differently, and we're certainly one of them. And in some ways, we do. Um, but I, I, there's some real divisions. I, I think there are some organizations out there that strictly do humanitarian relief. They go in, they save lives, they reduce suffering, they do it as quickly as they possibly can, and they leave. And I have a lot of respect for them to know when it's time to go and, and to know when there's a need. And so there's, there's a whole family of organizations that just do that. Um, there's other organizations that are more like Mercy Corps, and I think quite a few of the major you know, Care, Save the Children where they look at themselves as development organizations and look for transitions and are concerned about how, how humanitarian relief can, can ultimately undermine long-term development. So I don't think we're the only ones that do that. For Mercy Corps, I think the, the thing that is really unique about us is that the kinds of development work that we focus on are these societies in transition. It's, we single out that group of societies, the, that group of challenges to focus on. So in that sense, we're, we're a little bit different than, than some of the others. How do we coordinate was the second, really, it wasn't, it's a second theme. It's, and it's a challenge all the time. But looking at what's going on in Katrina, I'm beginning to think we're doing it pretty well in, in, in the international sphere. 
Um, it, but it's it's a real challenge. And I think, you know, when you look at, for, for example, Katrina and other rapid onset mass emergencies like the tsunami and like Katrina, where not only have tens of thousands of people been displaced, so not only have you seen this massive disruption, but also the very institutions in a society that respond to emergencies have been destroyed or disrupted. That's when you, you just are really, really challenged. And that's what we saw in, in, in BAM when the entire town of 200,000 was flattened. That's what we saw in the tsunami and town after town where, you know, you know, the Ministry of Health was wiped out, the police, the fire department, everything. And that's what we're seeing in New Orleans. And it's, you know, I guess in an area of the world in New Orleans where every season there's a hurricane, you would think you'd be better, better prepared for that contingency. It's, it's disappointing that we're not. In the case of the tsunami and the BAM earthquake, where, you know, the last earthquake and bomb was, uh, you know, a millennium ago, and, and the tsunami, you know, who could know? Y you could be a little bit more um, understanding that they're not ready for that. So what do we do? I mean, the UN, UNOCHA, provides a coordinating role. It takes them a long time to get up and running. But, um, and I think the other thing that happens, which really most essential and what worked best in the tsunami, was most of the leading NGOs, and I'm talking about, six or eight of us that really actually deliver probably 75% of the, the goods. We, we know each other, you know. We see each other time and time again, and we get together and we talk together because we know it's important. So there's kind of an informal thing that you see happen again and again until the formal mechanism gets up and running and in place. The formal mechanism, I am continue to be disappointed that the NGOs have not done more to use ICFA or Interaction or some of these international organizations to have a coordinating cell which is ready and goes out ahead of time, the politics have just never allowed it. And uh, I hope someday we get there. ICFA is setting up a coordinating cell in Aceh now, a, a year later, but uh, um, it's, it's, it's never too late. Hi, Steve Leventhal from the Fritz Institute. Uh, first, uh, Randy, I'd just like to say I really appreciate you being here today. You're uh, a big fan of Mercy Corps, and uh, you guys are really doing phenomenal work. Good, thanks. Um, I'm really interested uh, in getting your reaction to the previous talk around risk management. If you had four or five or six or ten of global corporations like Cisco um, who are really building a body of knowledge around this area, uh, what ways could that be useful to you? Um, were there particular aspects of that conversation that um, you were thinking, boy, I'd really like to have access to that? that knowledge and, 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 uh, and maybe this is a question that needs to be thought out over time, but did you, is, is that something that would be relevant? And if so, you know, possibly what areas? Yikes, that's a very good question. I, I wouldn't be a long discussion on that actually. Um, I think sort of getting back to the, the challenge that I see with supply chain and our relations with the corporate community is something that I would like to see us work a lot more on. And I'm beginning to see that. I mean, the Business Roundtable, for example, I think is a, is a very interesting new initiative by American corporations to start interfacing with, with NGOs on, on how they can, how we can think about disasters ahead of time, how we can use the, the knowledge and experience of the corporate community to reinforce um, 
organizations that are modeled like, like mine, like GEO, where we depend on pulling people, resources in, why not, why just Mercy Corps? Why can't we pull in people that we've talked to ahead of time from the corporate community that can help us set up a response to different emergencies? I mean, that, for example, I think is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a great idea that's come out of that, that discussion. How can we, I mean, we talk about prepositioning um, in logistics, how can, and which is a little bit old-fashioned, but pre-purchase agreements, is there a, a corollary to that? Is there a version of that that could work in, with, with corporations that are interested in making gifts in kind? Can you, we identify up front, and we have kind of a top ten list of things that are, in fact, usually needed and aren't often locally available. Tents is a perfect example. Plastic sheeting is, is not something you find at, in the souk. Um, so, I mean, identifying some of those things up front and connecting those with donors who are willing to provide them in, 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 ahead of, I mean, to, to agree ahead of time to those kinds of contributions would, would help us really dramatically. So that, I don't know if that's really answering your question, but those are some of the kinds of things that I, I think would be, would be really helpful for us to, to talk about. I'm Shishir Mukherjee. Uh, I retired from the city of Palo Alto about two years ago where I was um, one of the persons who was initially involved in setting up the uh, risk management uh, policy and oversight committee and writing the first uh, 3P document, as we call it, policies, procedures, and processes. Uh, one thing I learned uh, from my exposure to risk management, uh, beside the math, and, or how to interpret the math to the top management, is that we are, we are taking risk all the time, whether we are aware about it or not. No. Like let's say in California, we have, we have two risks. One risk is the earthquake risk. We cannot do anything about the occurrence of earthquake. It can happen the next minute. But we are still taking the risk of that the bridge has not been repaired. There are buildings which still need to be done. And we, are, we as a society is quietly taking the risk. Just like we took the risk in New Orleans about the levee breaking. There is another slow risk we are taking about global warming. We are, it is being talked about and we know that many of these natural disasters the frequency of which has been increased is due to global warming. And still we are not doing anything about it. We are quietly taking the risk. So the question is, how do we make people aware, not only people, but the government and the United Nations aware of the risks that we are taking and we are not aware of it and what needs to be done before the disaster happens? I agree very, very, very much that we have to do things before. Like here at my home, I have set up earthquake supplies, but again, you know, I, I forget to supplement it and things like that. In our neighborhood, we have set up various organizations to do this. But I think in, in a global scale, we need to do something about global warming. And the time is now, not 50 years later. Fifty years later, you know, much of the world will be underwater. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I think you make a really good point. And I think the business that I'm in has focused for way too long on 
disaster preparedness, which is really important, but we haven't looked enough at disaster mitigation, um, which is really what limits the impact of, of disasters, of identifying these. I mean, yeah, we, we should you know, be working to stop global warming, but when you understand, when you're, when you're working in an area that you know is prone to earthquakes, that you know is prone to, to, to tsunamis or, or, or to hurricanes, you need to, to mitigate the impact of those disasters through building codes, through architecture, through design, through, through all these things. And one of the things that I'm hoping will come out of Katrina, that when you look at the tsunami and you look at Katrina, the tsunami, I mean, well, the tsunami is a lot broader, but if you even took the impact of the tsunami on one place like Aceh, which is more on the scale of what's happened on the Gulf Coast, you look at the cost in human lives between the two, and there's just absolutely no comparison. I mean, yeah, there's some real tragedies in, in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, but, uh, you know, it, the biggest estimates are 10,000, and I don't know if we'll hit that. The, the tsunami took hundreds of thousands of lives. There was no mitigation whatsoever. Buildings were not built to resist um, earthquakes or... or but, but my point is that what happened in the Gulf Coast happened in a place where people are thinking about building codes, about how buildings are constructed, about how communities are organized in ways that there's a limited impact of natural disasters, be it fires, be it earthquakes, be it hurricanes. There's a limited human impact. There might be great material damage, but the number, the amount of human lives is greatly reduced in societies where there's been an effort to, to mitigate the impact. And certainly this part of the world along California is, is a great example of the extraordinary efforts that have been made to mitigate the impact of earthquakes here, which is when the next one hits is going to save tens of thousands of lives. So, you know, you're right. that That's so, so important. And the places where my organization works need to make a better effort to work on introducing mitigation when we follow up on on the disasters that we respond to. So it's a point well taken. We'll take three more since we have three mics. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Craig Williams, Architects Without Borders. And uh, I'm very pleased to meet you, Randy. I know that our Oregon chapter has been in some conversations uh, in Portland with uh, Mercy Corps and uh, we're sort of excited about the prospects of being able to work together in the future, as well as meeting and networking with people here today. It has been touched upon that that, that is really going to be important for all of us to build each other's capacities through the, the, the growing network and understanding of the resources that each of us can uniquely bring to bear on very complex and evolving situations. Um, one of the, the... We've touched on two important aspects of the supply chain. One is... Uh, goods, the other is services, and and one that I think that has been touched on briefly, and, and perhaps you could give us some examples about how Mercy Corps implements the, uh, a third component, and that is capa local capacity building within an affected demographic or an affected region, and and you touched upon it briefly in your analysis of whether or not to send sandals mm -hmm. and the economic impacts mm -hmm. on on the local vocations and and professional capacities that are there, yes, they're affected, but we don't want to undermine the capacity to re-evoke some empowering uh, support for those to recover and, and extend their resiliency uh, into the future. And, and that touches upon the development phase of recovery after a natural disaster and mm -hmm. conflict. 
So perhaps you could give us an example of, you know, train the trainer programs to, to help sort of illuminate that in terms of your organization, how it uh, achieves that is, I believe it, it is a, a, a one of your missions is to help build that capacity. Yeah, I, I think the, the great example is what we're doing in Niger right now. The sort of the traditional way of dealing with malnutrition, and I, I'm not a health expert, but I, I can tell you from a manager's point of view, the, 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 the traditional way of doing with, dealing with large amounts of malnutrition is to set up therapeutic feeding centers that are typically operated by NGOs. They bring in their international staff. They they hand out food. They supervise. It's it you know they monitor the the growth or the development or the improvement of of the children that are in the program. There's different variations. There's inpatient therapeutic feeding where they these children or the malnourished stay for days on end until they're back up to speed, and then they go home again where they return to the, the same practices which led them to being malnourished in the first place. The, 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 you know, and I have to say that you know, we've been a part of the industry that used that model for years and, 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 and can be self-critical about that. The direction that we're going with it now, which I, I, is really exciting, is, is called community-based therapeutic, uh, therapeutic feeding. And what you do then is you work with community leaders, you work with national health services to work with communities and with families and with mothers about nutrition to give to empower them to do the therapeutic feeding within their own homes to help you look for it's there's a part of the model is to look for positive deviance to look for the families where the children aren't malnourished and to engage those families in working with the families of the children where children are malnourished to to, to help them see how they can use their own resources to, to better nourish their own children. So it's an example that, that I think when we leave Niger, there will be something left in place that, that wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise be there. Um, so I'm really proud of that model, and I, I think that's a real good example of how you can go to an emergency and not only help relieve suffering immediately, but, but leave something behind in terms of increased capacity. My name is Gary Waltonbaugh, and I'm also with Mercy Corps, and I'm sure Randy's very interested in what I'm <clears throat> about to say. Um, I, I'd like to make a, a quick comment and then just a, a brief question, and it's not directed so much at Randy as it is everybody in the room, if I might. And I probably should start with a confession. I'm the director of material aid and tried to send all that stuff to Randy out the field. <clears throat> so yeah, I, I should just say that in passing. What, what I want... What I want to comment on very specifically is we as NGOs in the NGO world uh, really need to practice much better due diligence in the acceptance of product that we take to, uh, uh, to utilize in an emergency or any kind of crisis. And the reason I'm saying that is Andy, uh, Randy's given you all, already the illustrations of how that can really screw up a system. What I'm saying is it's an educational process and we need to do a better job with our donors and somehow you need to help us figure out how we can do a better job of educating corporations in the donations they want to give us. It's a two-way street. It's a double-edged sword, and both of those things can cause difficulties. That's my comment. The question that I wanted to ask is we would love to be able, as part of that three-legged stool, to get intellectual capital from corporations to be utilized within our, within our, our, our management process, our, our field processes, the question is, how do we do that and do that effectively? 
especially when in some of the situations that I've been engaged in, we've tried to get corporations to uh, have some of that intellectual capital, which they, they, they literally have indicated to us they want to, want to share. They really want to share. And let's face it, there's multiple expertise there that we could use. But then when we get to their risk managers in their corporations and they look at the countries that these people would have to go to, they don't let them go. Yet that's where we work. That's the world that we live in. It's something that I'd love to have a more of a dialogue on later, but it's a question that I'm throwing out to the, to the field here that it would be interesting to see how we could better coordinate with the corporate world to use those resources. Thank you. That's a good question, and I don't think we have time to answer from all of us, but may I ask uh, maybe uh, Dr. Thomas to maybe say a few words about what the Fritz Institute also has been trying to get intellectual capital from the private sector to contribute uh, to the humanitarian organizations. Gary, you make a great point. Uh, we worked with Accenture to send some people to Namibia, which is not even in war at the moment, and that was a problem. What Fritz Institute tries to do is prepare the people here uh, to work before the disasters so that your organizations have that capacity on the ground during disasters. I mean, organizations are responsible for their employees, and their insurance policies often won't allow them to go to the places that we go to and that you go to. But there are lots of ways to get around that, and intermediary organizations like ours try to make it simple uh, by sort of analyzing the need, creating a specific requirement, and making the assignment for the corporate volunteer, if you will, very clean with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'll make this quick. I know that we're running into break time. Tom Goldsby, the University of Kentucky. I find this discussion fascinating, very intriguing, as I do your work, certainly. I'm curious, in working closely with industry, with, with private companies, private sector, they're very savvy, I find, in performance measurement to justify action, to justify their very existence. I'm curious as to what you might consider to be your key performance indicators, those things that provide post-response assessment and drive continuous improvement? Okay, good question. Is it time for a break, did you say? <laughs> um, a very good question and one that, that we work a lot on. Um, at Mercy Corps, I, for our development programs, we, we are very serious about design monitoring and evaluation. We have a, a unit built around it. But, but the dynamics of development work are such that you, I think you have a lot more time to be thoughtful about how you evaluate impact. In emergencies, it's, it's, a real, it's a real challenge for us, and, and we know it. We're working on it. One of the things that's been enormously helpful for us that's come out in the last 10 years, 5 or 10 years, is the development of sphere standards. I don't know how many of you have heard, heard of these, but it, it was, uh, it's, it's now an organization based in Geneva, but it, it was comprised of representatives from the NGO community who worked together, including Mercy Corps. We're very active in this were engaged together over a couple of years to develop some basic standards around health and nutrition, around shelter, around water and sanitation, around logistics. And within each one of these sectors, there's a number of, of indicators that we use to measure, measure what needs are, to measure crises. And for example, um, there are standards, there are minimum standards in an emergency. This is the minimum of what you need to be acceptable. How much, how many liters of water per person per day do you need? 
how many what's the what, what's the percentage of or the number of fecal coliforms i'm not a sanitarian but you know the, some of the details about the water quality are in there how much uh, shelter space does a person need in an emergency um how many how many latrines do you need you know how many people per latrine how far should you have to walk to a water source how long should you have to wait for water so there are these the sphere indicators that we that this the my industry uses more and more to to measure what the needs are and then to measure whether we're getting closer to, to, to making improvements. But those are all very mechanical. They're, very, they're not really impacts. And when, impact, I mean, you, you have to come back and start talking about the fundamental thing. Are people dying or are people living? What is their mortality rate? What is the crude mortality rate, which we measure in terms of number of deaths per 10,000 people per day one person per 10,000 per day is considered an emergency. So the measurement of crude mortality is a very important indicator for us. The measure of under five's mortality is also a very, very indicator. And then there's a number of morbidity indicators as well that we have in terms of, you know, deaths from malaria, water quality, dysentery, um, all these kinds of things that we measure whether or not we're ha- so having some some kind of impact on on uh, a population it's very interesting when you get into situations like the tsunami where the mort- mortality impact was on the all in a couple of hours and really what we were trying to show is that there wasn't mortality after that so we we're trying to prove that something wouldn't happen it, it was it was very interesting there was lots of talk about how disease would come, how you know rotting corpses and poor water quality and all that would cause you know tens if not hundreds of thousands of more deaths. That didn't materialize, and so one of the indicators we could say is, well, nothing happened. You know, we were successful because because those those indicators didn't increase. But you know, there are indicators out there, and we are working on it. And but it is it is a challenge in emergencies. It's hard to set baselines down when you're trying to deliver aid right away. Cluster surveys, there's all kinds of mechanisms that we can sort of work around that, but uh, we have a long way to go with it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a presentation from the Disruption Management Seminar produced by the Center for Social Innovation and held at Stanford, California, September 8, 2005. For more practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review at www.ssireview.com. The series producer for this program is Bernadette Clavier. Post-production audio by Bruce Sharp. My name is Doug Kay, and I hope you'll join me next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.